Amen. You know, that song that uh, you sang, uh, Let Us Go Down to the River and Pray, reminded me of a funny story about the, uh, the country preacher who had a guy in his congregation, uh, been there a long time, and he was uh, kind of known for being a bit of a troublemaker around town, and he, it was not uncommon for him to be, uh, you know, out front uh, sometimes, uh, you know, in, in town at the at the local bars and the hangouts, and he just was not uh, really giving a good testimony. And and so uh, it just so happened that on a particular Sunday, the pastor said, you know, I really want to address this. So he decided to preach a message on the dangers of drunkenness. And uh, it, unfortunately for him, that same Sunday, this uh, fellow that was uh, causing all the problems happened to also be uh, leading the music. And so, uh, but he said, no matter, I'm just going to preach what God put on my heart. So the preacher gets up and preached this eloquent message about the dangers of drunkenness. And he says, you know, as he was climaxing his message at the end, he says, so if I could, I'd take all the beer in this town and I'd pour it down in the river. And then he said, in fact, if I had, if I could, I'd take all the wine and I'd just, I'd pour it down in the river. In fact, I'd take every liquor bottle I could find and I'd dump it in the river. And then the guy gets up to close out the service with the final hymn, and he says, would you all stand and please sing with me, Shall We Gather at the River? So I'm not sure, I'm not sure the pastor accomplished what he, was, uh, what he was hoping for. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts 23 as we uh, continue to work our way through this uh, historical narrative uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit written by Luke uh, as he recounts for us the uh, expansion of the church. And we're uh, in a section where the Apostle Paul is facing some suffering, and we talked about that last week, but I'm calling this message Fall, How to Handle False Accusations. False accusations, of course, are as old as humanity. It was Satan who levied false accusations against God when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, he said, God has not said you shall not die. Uh, he accused God of lying. Of course, it was a false accusation, but deception is really the essence of sin. That is, all sin involves some sort of deception, lying to others, lying about others, lying to self, lying to God. You can really boil it down to deception. And false accusations are just another form of deception. And yet, God's Word singles out false accusations, lying about others, for special treatment in his word. It seems to have a special uh, clasp to itself. I want you to consider the words of uh, King David in Psalm 35 when he says, They do not speak peaceably, but devise false accusations against those who live quietly in the land. Now that phrase in red there, devise false accusations. In Hebrew, it's literally devise words of deceit. The New King James translates it, devise deceitful matters. I chose uh, the NIV here just because it's a good English translation in this case. They devise false accusations. False accusations even make God's top ten list. If you go to the ninth commandment in the God's ten commandments, we read, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. According to the Jewish law, someone who accused another person falsely actually was in for a pretty ironic punishment. We read in Deuteronomy 19, quote, And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness 
is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then, he, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. The law also specified that the punishment of a false witness was to be carried out without mercy. In other words, God takes false accusations pretty seriously. And so should we. The danger of making false accusations is played out in a fascinating historical account in the book of Esther, and it actually illustrates what we just read in Deuteronomy 19. Do you remember the story of Haman? Haman uh, was a key player in the court of the Persian king Ahasuerus, and he became absolutely incensed that this Jewish man, Mordecai, refused to kneel or bow to him. So Haman concocted a plot to frame Mordecai. And he was going to have him hanged on a gallows that were 50 cubits high. The cubit, remember, was roughly from your elbow to your fingertip, so it wasn't an exact measurement. But if we assume roughly two feet, maybe a little more, depending on the length of your arms, we're talking here 100 uh, feet or more. And so that was his plan. And he set out to accomplish his plan of killing Mordecai by making false accusations against him. And he devised this plot because he hated the Jews, and he especially hated Mordecai. So Haman was jealous of a favor that Mordecai had received from the Persian king. But using some very subtle, and it's a fascinating story, go back and read Esther this afternoon if you have time. Uh, he, using some very subtle maneuvering, Mordecai and Esther, who was his niece, were able to align themselves with the king against Haman. And when Haman's plot was uncovered, guess what? The punishment was poetic justice. He was hung on the very gallows he had constructed for Mordecai. We read in chapter 7, verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. We need to understand those who make false accusations are under God's judgment. That's why God word, God's word says in, again, another psalm of David here, Psalm 5, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And the closer we get to the end of the age, the more we can expect our enemies to make false accusations against us. But Jesus encourages us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in our text, the day is June 3rd, 57 AD. Remember, Paul is in Jerusalem, and uh, he finds himself before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council made up of 71 men, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the high priest. And remember last week we looked at how the Roman commander Claudius Lysias had basically said to the Jews, to the, the council, look, you people handle this. I don't have a clue what's going on. I don't understand why you're so upset at Paul. I've tried to get to the bottom and I can't figure it out. You take him. You see, people lie about others in order to stir up trouble or sometimes to achieve some nefarious agenda. 
People accuse others falsely as a revenge tactic sometimes, or a power play, or when they think they have something to gain. This was certainly the case with the unbelieving Jewish leaders in Paul's day. They did not like that Paul had converted to Christianity when he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. They did not like that one of their chief leaders, he was a Pharisee, remember, uh, he had been a part of the Sanhedrin. They didn't like that he was out there now preaching grace and encouraging Gentiles, no less, dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles, to come to Almighty God simply by faith, childlike faith. They didn't like that. And so they were out for revenge. And in these 10 verses in chapter 23, I think we can, we can glean seven lessons from the life of Paul as it relates to false accusations. And the first one is this in verse 1, don't be afraid to defend yourself. Don't be afraid to defend yourself. So last week we looked at a diagram of the Sanhedrin. And remember, this was kind of on the temple grounds. It was a designated spot where this Jewish council with the high priest sitting, you know, and in the raised platform there would preside. And you had, you know, the elders and the, the, the rulers and the scribes. The rulers and the elders were mainly the Sadducees and the, the scribes were mainly the, the Pharisees. And so this is where Paul is as the Roman commander uh, from the fortress of Antonia, which is up, if you look in that inset in the bottom right up there, would be in the top right corner, the northwest corner, uh, the way the temple would be mounted on a map. And so that's where he was headquartered. And he had taken Paul to the barracks already once. He's going to take him there again at the end of our text today. But he basically brings Paul to this chamber. It was often called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. And he says, you guys deal with him. He, didn't, he couldn't understand why everybody was so upset. Paul, last week, we looked at how he was defending himself before the, the Roman commander. And now he's going to have the opportunity to defend himself before the Sanhedrin. But I'm reminded of the words of uh, one of our presidents, Abraham Lincoln. This is a paraphrase, but essentially he said, I will not defend myself. My friends don't need a defense, and my enemies won't believe me anyway. And this may be true in some situations. Uh, you know, you're not obligated to convince your enemies uh, that you're innocent. God knows you're innocent. But there also is a time to defend yourselves. And Paul understood that, and that's what he does here. So Paul, looking earnestly at the council, the Sanhedrin, said, quote, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You know, that statement is interesting because in his epistles, which by the time this is happening, Paul has already written six of his 13 letters. Uh, he, he had written Galatians. He'd written, uh, well, first he wrote Galatians, then First and Second Thessalonians, and then he wrote First and Second Corinthians and Romans. So by the time we get here, he's already written six letters. But if you look at all of his writings, 23 different times in his letters, he appeals to his conscience and basically says, God knows my heart and God knows the truth. And you, you, you know, what you're saying is simply false. It's slanderous and, it's, and, and God's going to hold you accountable for it. So in this context, his claim meant that he believed he had done, had done nothing wrong. And, uh, and, and he had done nothing contrary to the will of God, that he had, been, he had kept the, the law. He was a devout Jew. We, we talked about that a few weeks ago when he participated in that vow just to show that he's not shunning 
the traditions and culture of the Jews. But at the same time, he understood that salvation is by faith. The same way Abraham understood that. Father Abraham. And the, the, the council should have known this. Um, and so Paul's you know, Christian beliefs and his conduct now that he's met Christ and is a born-again believer did not compromise his Jewish heritage, which is exactly what they were accusing him of doing. But he's going to say this again in the context of his trial before Felix, the Roman governor of the province of Syria, which included Judea. But he says, I myself always strive to have a good conscience without offense toward God and men. See, all we can be responsible for is our accountability to God. If that offends people, that, that's, we, we can't do that. We don't want to purposely offend people. And Paul certainly wasn't trying to do that. He's just saying, look, I understand grace. I, the chief of sinners, as he would later tell Timothy, understand grace. And I understand that it's only by grace that anyone is ever saved, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, because the Lord Jesus could save even a sinner such as I, I'm going to proclaim God's grace until he comes or he calls me home. And Paul, in his writings, was frequently eagerly looking forward to the return of Christ. Now, it wasn't God's will that he come back in Paul's day, so Paul went the way of all flesh. He's with the Lord today, waiting uh, for the resurrection at the rapture. And uh, he's enjoying time with the Lord, the one who saved him in spite of all of his sins. And if the Lord tarries his coming, someday we'll be there as, as well, if you know the Lord. Um, in Corinthians, just a couple of examples. Uh, he wrote First and Second Corinthians not long before the occasion that we're reading about now, just a few months. He says, uh, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Uh, he goes on, so, says something similar in his second letter. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. So again, one of those references to conscience. So don't be afraid to defend yourself. There's a time to defend yourself, and there's a time to just let it go. And the Spirit of God will show you which it is. But the second thing we learn from Paul's experience before the Sanhedrin is you got to be prepared to suffer. And I tell you, you know, uh, Wendy and I were talking, every time I talk about suffering, it seems like the devil attacks. You know, we've had multiple attacks in recent, last week or so. We've got sick kids, three people homesick. We've got weather issues. We've got big conferences coming up. We're trying to figure out how to skirt the, the, the weather and whether, you know, it's safe to travel and all these kinds of things. We've had uh, it, all, all sorts of attacks. And, you know, do we know for sure that it's the devil? No, we don't. But even if it's not, even if it's just a trial of life, it's a season of suffering. And, uh, you know, we get critical emails, critical anonymous notes, all kinds of things with people that just aren't happy, you know. Uh, hard to understand, but some people just aren't happy. But uh, we need to be prepared to suffer. Defending yourself in the face of false accusations doesn't mean you get a pass on suffering. You know, sometimes taking a stand for what's true comes at a cost. And that's what we see with Paul here. So verse 2, as Paul had defended himself, I know nothing against myself. All of a sudden the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. I mean, imagine that. All Paul is saying is, look, I, I mean, my conscience is clear. 
The Lord will show me if I've, over, if I've overstepped or I'm wrong. And he gets slapped in the face. So Paul's claim incensed Ananias the high priest. And so he orders a soldier to strike Paul on the mouth. Uh, Ananias, who was a Sadducee, had already probably made up his mind about Paul, who had been a Pharisee. So there was already, as we're going to see in a second, some animosity there between the Sadducees and Pharisees. And even though Paul was no longer a Pharisee, he was a born-again Christian, this, this Ananias had some baggage there that he was not pleased with Paul anyway. So another officer of another high priest had similarly, if you recall, struck Jesus when he testified at his turn in the chamber of human stone there, the Sanhedrin. Uh, Ananias, the one here, became Israel's high priest in 47 A.D., 10 years earlier. Remember, it's 57 A.D. He was not the same Ananias who was called the high priest in the Gospels, a different one, common name. But the Jewish high priesthood was a political appointment during uh, the Roman Empire. And Josephus, the first century historian, painted this Ananias as a despicable person. He tells us all about him. He seized for his own use tithes that should have gone to the ordinary priests. He gave large bribes to the Romans and the Jews, for that matter. The emperor at one point summoned him to Rome on charges of being involved in a bloody battle between the Jews and the Samaritans, but he talked his way out of it and escaped punishment. Ananias was a very wealthy man, and he resorted to violence and even assassination when needed to accomplish his ends. He was very pro-Roman, and eventually, in the Jewish uprising in 66 A.D., about nine years after Paul stood before him, he was assassinated himself. So quite often, false accusations come from those who themselves are engaged in sinful secret behavior. And that was certainly the case with Ananias. But Paul was prepared for this. This was by no means the first suffering he had uh, endured. We've seen this in his journey, going all the way back to the first missionary journey. How many things he suffered for the Lord. In fact, when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, Jesus told him, I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So he was prepared. Jesus had told us the same thing, speaking to the disciples in the upper room the very night he was betrayed. He gave them, and by extension us, this promise. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Paul, in the last letter that he wrote, again, ten years later from what we're experiencing, reading about in this uh, text, in 67 AD, he said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, in the face of false accusations, be prepared to suffer. Don't be afraid to defend yourself. Be prepared to suffer. And number three, express righteous anger when appropriate. Express righteous anger when appropriate. So how did Paul respond? Remember, he stands up. He's thrust into this council by the commander who was just about to have him scourged, as we talked about last week. Now he finds himself before his kinsmen, in this, these other Jews in this council. And all he says is, look, my conscience is clear. Smack. And then, so what does Paul say? Well, look at verse 3. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> now, you know, again, you got to compare Scripture with Scripture. And there is a time for righteous anger. Some people elevate certain passages of Scripture, and they've turned 
Christians and to pacifists who can never speak up, speak out, or take, you know, defend themselves. And they get that by elevating certain passages without comparing them to others. But there is absolutely a time for righteous anger. He goes on, For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? See, the Jewish law considered a person innocent until proven guilty, but Ananias had administered some punishment before Paul had even been charged, much less tried and found guilty. So he reacted indignantly. And by the way, notice Paul gives a prophecy of his own here. God will strike you, which as we said nine years later is exactly what happened to Ananias. A whitewashed wall is a, a wall that was frequently inferior structurally, but it looked good outwardly. And that's the same thing Jesus would say, said during his earthly ministry to the Jewish unbelieving leaders. They're whitewashed walls. They're, they might dot their I's and cross their T's. They might wear the, the, the garb like this high priest would wear his high priestly garb. They might have the huge phylacteries like the Old Testament talked about them having. They might uh, give money loudly and make sure everybody knows it. They might uh, pray really loudly so everybody hears these long prayers, you know. But the fact is, uh, inside, they're nothing. They're nothing. And Jesus, in his first major sermon of his earthly ministry, addresses these unbelieving Jewish scribes and Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he, he continually exposes their lack of faith righteousness and criticizes their self-righteousness. Remember, he says things like, um, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, you know, you, you brag about how you've never murdered, but let me ask you, have you hated? You're guilty. You act, you're so proud patting yourselves on the back because you've never committed adultery, but have you lusted? In other words, you think you've got it all together, but your heart is far from me. In fact, in Matthew 5, 48, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, you've got to be perfect. He says earlier in that chapter, verse 17, he says, or maybe it's verse 20, 17 to 20 in there, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the, the, the righteousness of these Pharisees and Sadducees, you'll never get into the kingdom. So you've got to get the picture. Here's Jesus speaking to the crowds on the hillside, the Pharisees and scribes who by now, because the Sermon on the Mount took place about a year into Christ's earthly ministry. It wasn't right out of the chute. So by this time, he, they're watching him. And you can just picture them kind of standing back in the shadows, listening to what Jesus is saying to the crowds on the hillside. And I, I can't prove it, but I believe that he was looking right at them, maybe even pointing to them when he says to the crowd, hey, you got to be way better than those characters back there. And then you can almost hear the gasps in the crowd because, you know, they, even though they didn't like the way these Jewish leaders lorded it over them, in their paradigm, they still, they still kind of considered these Jewish scribes and Pharisees as the top tier. These were the ones that dotted their I's and crossed their T's and had it together. And so they must have wondered, well, if we got to be better than that, how in the world can we get in? Jesus goes on to explain, in fact, you got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, it's not what you do that matters, it's who you are. 
And because these Jewish scribes and Pharisees had never trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, but in fact had crucified Him, they didn't know the Lord. They didn't have that faith righteousness that comes only by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. That's how Abraham became declared righteous, by faith. And they missed it. So Paul rightly, in righteous anger, calls them a whitewashed wall. Now, it wasn't uncommon for Paul to react passionately. Remember, in his first letter, he tells the story after he had been saved not very long at all, interacting with Peter, who at that time was the undisputed leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And Peter equivocated in his actions when other leaders from Jewish, I mean, Jewish-believing leaders, the early church leaders, came up to visit him at Antioch. And uh, Peter had been fellowshipping with the Gentiles and enjoying the fellowship of the brotherhood of Christ. And then he withdrew, and Paul rebuked him on the spot. And, 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 and he tells us, I withstood him to his face. Here's a new convert rebuking the, the you know, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, which is basically what Peter was. Um, so Paul was passionate. He goes on in Galatians 5 in a rather flowery retort to those Jews who suggested you got to be circumcised and keep the law if you really want to get to heaven. Paul says, absolutely not. It's by faith alone. In fact, I wish they would just cut themselves off. And you can kind of get the idea of what he's talking about there. In Philippians, he has these kind, gentle, loving, gracious words to say for these uh, false teachers. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. See, there's a time for righteous anger when it's appropriate. And that's the way Paul reacted to Ananias. So don't be afraid to defend yourself. Be prepared to suffer. Express righteous anger when appropriate. But always be gracious. It's not selfish. It's not arrogant. It's not lording it over others the way the Pharisees did. There's got to be a graciousness there. And so look what we read next. Those who stood by said to Paul, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren. Brethren in the Jewish culture was a way to refer to other Jews. In the Christian culture, it's a way to refer to other Christians. I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. And then Paul quotes scripture, sort of indicting himself and saying, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul there are any number of reasons Paul might not have known that the person who commanded the soldier to strike him was the high priest. Uh, first of all, Paul had not been in Jerusalem for over 20 years until this time. So, you know, they didn't have Facebook and he didn't, you know, watch the evening news. Uh, so he may not have recognized that, you know, this was the current high priest uh, because he, Ananias might not have been wearing the high priestly robes. It was a hastily thrown together meeting, you know, remember the, the Roman commander said, hey, you guys take him. And so they quickly assembled everyone. The high priest might not have had time to go put all his garb on and take the seat. So that's one possibility. Um, or maybe Paul was looking in another direction when Ananias gave the order and he didn't see who had actually said it. Or maybe Paul had poor eyesight. A lot of Bible teachers suggest uh, that he might have, and maybe he just he really couldn't see who issued the order. But regardless, Paul quotes Exodus 22, 28 here, what you see in red, that shows he knows the law, he understands the law, he wants to obey the law. He didn't want to give them any fodder 
to falsely claim that he was shunning his nose at the law. He wasn't shunning his nose at the law. He was just saying, you don't have to keep the law to get to heaven. But God's law is helpful. It's for our own good. James says his commandments are not burdensome, right? So uh, we need to be gracious, even in facing false accusations. That's why Paul would later say in one of his prison epistles, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, and let your speech always be with grace. Let your speech always be with grace. So always be gracious. A fifth thing that we learn from Paul's experience, not only don't be afraid to defend yourself, be prepared to suffer, express righteous anger when it's appropriate, and be gracious is remember you are ultimately defending Christ. You're ultimately defending Christ. If we go back to the text, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And then listen, this is the key part. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. See, Paul understood that he couldn't get a fair trial in a court that did not even observe the law that it purported to defend. So he changed his tactics. Uh, he decided to divide the jury, and he begins his defense again with brothers, men and brethren. But this time he takes the offensive. And the issue, don't miss this, the issue of the hope and the resurrection of the dead was fundamental in Paul's case here. And it's fundamental throughout his teaching. And it will come up again and again from now till the end of Acts as he finds himself on the defensive again and again and again. Israel's national hope of deliverance by her Messiah into the kingdom someday is completely rested upon the resurrection of the Messiah. No resurrection, no hope. No resurrection, no king. No resurrection, no throne. No resurrection, no temple. No resurrection, no kingdom. And so by raising this old controversy, uh, Paul wasn't just poking the bear or trying to distract or divide. He wasn't just injecting a controversial subject to distract from the proceedings. He was introducing the central issue of his day. And by the way, the central issue of our day. The resurrection, without which mankind cannot be saved. Throughout Paul's trials, it comes up again and again, this theme of hope and resurrection. It's the central theme of his climactic speech in chapter 26 before King Agrippa. And in, in 1 Corinthians, again, which Paul had just written not months earlier, he had made it clear in that great chapter on the resurrection, chapter 15, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. See, the resurrection is the key. And when you face false accusations for serving the Lord or for doing something uh, right for the Lord, you need to, to remember who you're defending. In this case, Paul took the opportunity, even in, even in the time of great persecution and suffering, to proclaim the hope of the resurrection. And we need to remember that too. It's, it's not about us. It's not. feels like it. <laughs> And I know everyone in this room has had experiences to greater and lesser degrees in your journey where you've experienced false accusations. Doesn't feel good, does it? It hurts. It's easy to get defensive. 
It's easy to respond. But we need to remember, ultimately, we represent Christ. And then number six, let God defend you. Let God defend you. Even though there's a place for righteous anger, and even though there's a place to defend yourself, you're never going to convince your detractors using human arguments. Speak your peace and leave it up to God. And that's what we see happening here. Verses 7 through 9. When he had said this about the hope of the resurrection, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the whole assembly was divided. Luke tells us, For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. You know, funny how their tune changed the minute he, you know, agrees with them. Uh, you know, it's, it's crazy how sometimes your enemy can be with you and then against you, you know. But anyway, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. See, Paul's belief in the resurrection divided the council. The Sadducees denied any possibility of a resurrection. They certainly didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And, you know, they also denied the existence of good and evil spirits. The Pharisees, of course, believed in these things. And the Pharisees, moreover, defended Paul's claim of having received a vision on the Damascus Road. We read about that in chapter 22. But... The, the Sadducees rejected it. Paul's whole conversion experience to them was false. He, he was making it up, another false accusation. So the Pharisees sided with Paul, and the Sadducees sided against Paul. And it's interesting that the Pharisees said, let us not fight against God. I love that. I wonder if your enemy would say that. Ask yourself, your enemies, your detractors, are they saying, maybe outside of your hearing, that they feel like they're fighting against God? I hope so. I hope people are saying that about me. Because notwithstanding the attacks, notwithstanding the criticism, notwithstanding the suffering and the, you know, the, the spiritual battle, God continues to bless, you know. Uh, you know, God's, uh, in 35 years of ministry, early on in my ministry, even before I met Wendy, uh, God gave me a, a passion for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. I won't take the time to share that story, but it was just a happenstance convergence of events that got me interested in that particular idea of theology, the, the clarity of the gospel. What precisely does someone have to believe about Jesus to have eternal life? And so, all our lives, we've been passionate about that and you know it's been a journey so uh people have suffered much much more than we'll ever suffer not certainly not saying that and that's a good principle to remember there's always someone out there suffering worse but we understand that it's a spiritual battle satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel and anyone that's out there proclaiming the gospel is going to take some arrows no question but do others know that god is with you in the battle Let us not fight against God. Several times King David talks about this in Psalm 20. 
He said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In other words, God will defend us. Second Chronicles 32, Hezekiah is encouraging the people of Israel when the king of Syria, Sennacherib, was coming against them, threatening them. And Hezekiah says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. That's a very encouraging statement. I mean, arm of flesh is, is what he uses there, talking about the brute strength of this enemy army. But that's a metaphor for whatever the enemy throws at you. Critical email, arm of, you know, arm of the flesh. Anonymous note, arm of the flesh. Fo you know, voicemails that, you know, we didn't like what you said, arm of the flesh. Posts on, uh, you know, videos and social media, arm of the flesh. With us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Let God defend you. Back to David, another Davidic psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Another Davidic psalm, Psalm 56. When I, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me. One more. David's words in Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Let God defend you. And finally, in verse 10, so we've seen, don't be afraid to defend yourself. Be prepared to suffer. Express righteous anger when appropriate. Always be gracious. Remember, you're ultimately defending Christ. Let God defend you ultimately. And finally, don't expect the conflict to end soon. Don't expect the conflict to end soon. As we continue through our journey with Paul, it seems like we're going to come back to the same theme again and again because Paul endures it again and again. But we read in verse 10, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander who was you know, watching, he's the one that threw Paul in there and said, You guys deal with it. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So here he's going back into the barracks again. I mean, imagine what Claudius Lysias, the commander, the Roman commander, must have been thinking. Once more, he could not discover what Paul had done or why so many Jews hated him. Every time he sought to find an answer, it was nothing but an uproar. And, and in, in this case, some people were with him, some were against him, you know, this dispute that had arisen, this chaos, eliminated any possibility of a, of a serious examination and getting to the bottom of it. And he was afraid that Paul is going to be torn to bits by the Sadducees. And so, you know, he says, okay, let, let's go. So he takes him into protective custody once again. And he brings him back into the barracks, the, the fortress of Antonia. But, of course, Paul's troubles were fall from over, as we shall see next time as we continue. But how to handle false accusations? First of all, never be afraid to defend yourself. Recognize you're going to suffer. Don't be afraid to express righteous anger when, when appropriate. Uh, because, remember, it's Christ that we're ultimately defending. But be gracious. Don't be bitter or personal or whatever. Be gracious. 
Remember, it's God that's defending you, and don't expect the conflict to end soon. So a couple of passages on how we should respond to false accusations. I love this from Psalm 119. The proud have forged a lie against me, notice, but I will keep your precepts. Remember in this famous chapter, longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, there are several synonyms in Hebrew used to refer to what we now know as the Bible, God's Word. Precepts, law, commandments, judgments, and so forth, those kinds of things. So he says, yeah, the, the, the proud have forged a lie against me, but I'm going to keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their, their heart is as, a, as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. In other words, when falsely accused, stay in the word. Because otherwise, your mind is going to become consumed with all the hurt, the pain, the anger, the bitterness, trying to defend yourself, having those. You ever, you ever find yourself having those uh, private conversations with someone when you're alone? Like you're just rehearsing what you would say if you talked about what you really want to say. And then all of a sudden, you, you, you realize, wait a minute, I, I need to let that go. It'll help you do that if you stay in the Word of God. Um, and by the way, when hearing accusations against others from someone else, because I mean, false accusations aren't always just levied at, directly at the person. They're levied about the person at everyone else. False accusers love to let everybody know uh, what they're saying. Remember what Proverbs tells us, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes in and examines him. Get the facts before receiving an accusation and believing it. Proverbs tells us, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame to him. Shame on us if we blindly accept an accusation without first getting the whole story. So, uh, what's the takeaway? Well, uh, pretty simple. Uh, I think this is what I want to leave you with. Avoid making and listening to false accusations. Do what Proverbs says, examine before you jump to conclusions. And be very, very, very careful about accusing someone falsely. As we started out this morning's message, that's a serious thing. That's a serious thing. God takes it pretty serious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, just life lessons that we see here in this, uh, another frightening and difficult experience of Paul. I pray that as we looked at these scriptures, it would just convict and, and reprove where needed and that it would also encourage and edify those who may be facing this kind of suffering. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice today that doesn't know you, doesn't know your resurrected son and our savior, I pray that they would put their faith this morning in the only one who can forgive sin and give them eternal life. And that is Jesus Christ who died and rose again for their sins. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.